Welcome to the Exit Stage Left, the Birmingham New Theatre 50th Year Oral History Project, funded by the Heritage Lottery. We're thrilled to take you on a journey through time as we celebrate the incredible legacy of Birmingham Youth Theatre. In this special podcast series, we delve deep into the heart of BYT's rich history, revealing the stories, experiences and memories that have made this youth theatre an enduring force for the past five decades. Our second season is all about reflections, revelations and reminiscences. We'll be unlocking the vault of memories, anecdotes and tales shared by those who have graced BYT's stage and backstage, both young and old. These voices you'll hear aren't just storytellers, they're the key peers of living history, the very essence of what Berlin Youth Theatre has meant to the community over the years. From auditions that made hearts race, to backstage secrets that seldom left the dressing room, from the echoes of laughter during rehearsals, to standing ovations on opening nights, we're here to celebrate the magic of BYT. So sit back, relax, and get ready for an unforgettable journey through Burnley Youth Theatre's 50 years of captivating stories, all made possible by the generous support of the Heritage Lottery. Okay. Hi, I'm Fiona, Heritage Curator at Burnley Youth Theatre, and today I'm talking to the wonderful Anthony Preston. So Anthony, I'm wondering, how did you first come in contact with Burnley Youth Theatre? Well, there's a, there's a lot to talk about, and I've got to say, I'm, I'm super excited that I'm finally getting the chance to, um, to get all this stuff out there because you know it's in such danger of being lost isn't it oh definitely. Uh, which is obviously what all of this is about and so I've been spending quite a bit of time um kind of writing it all down um over the last few months it's been quite a cathartic experience actually because it's a bit like writing your diary um because youth has been so much of my life for a very long time uh, and I've been, you know, I've been laughing out loud to myself, uh, uh, you know, yeah. as you kind of remember, you know, a little, a little nugget of something that you'd forgotten about for so long. Um, so I, I do apologise a bit in advance that this might be your longest podcast yet. Oh, <laughs> um, because there is so much to get in, and mm. I don't want to miss it. It's like a once in a lifetime opportunity, isn't it? to get it down. So when I was working through kind of what, what what to include, I mean, obviously I want to go back to those years when I first got, in, got involved, but I was really struck by how challenging it is um, when you're trying to think back to the very early days. I mean, that that's the hard time, you know, because I was only a, a teenager and we're talking mm-hmm. back in the 70s. So, you know, it is a long time to reflect back, but some things really do stick with you. And, you know, you have a memory and then that memory sparks another memory. And I've been thinking, well, you know, what's worth including and what's relevant and uh, what do people want to really uh, know about that might interest them? And I didn't want it to just be about me talking about what I was in and what parts I played and what I did. I think what's really helpful is also for people to hear about what I know about the journey of the organisation, because I think I hold a lot of that 
information. And that's the interesting bit. Um, and I think over time as well, your memories become a bit embellished. You know, yeah. you, t- you, t- you tell the stories over and over again to friends and then you add a bit in and you add a bit in and then you think, hmm, did that really happen? So it is quite difficult to know whether it's the truth or not. Mm. I have a real struggle with the chronology of events. Mm-hmm. I am not good at dates and years. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes I think, oh, no, no, that, you know, that was a few years before that or a few years after that. So I apologise that some of it might not be in the right order either. And I'm sure other people will correct me who contribute to uh, other uh, podcasts. Um uh, and I, I remember I went, went to see the uh, recent Christmas show, The Wizard of Oz, at the youth theatre, and there were some people there who who were there back when I was there back in the 1970s. And we were even arguing then about what date something was. You know, none of us could agree. <laughs> and I didn't just want this to be a passive recollection of events. Mm-hmm. You know, as I've said, you know, not just what I was in and what I did. Um I think I can hopefully provide some comment and reflection about, you know, kind of what what the youth theatre's about, really. Oh, definitely, uh, um, Because that's the really important bit. Um, so starting to just think about that, what is the youth theatre about? And why is the youth theatre so unique? Yeah. Because it is unique. Mm-hmm. And for me... Quality youth theatres, it's, it's quite a catalyst for affecting change in individuals, uh, obviously, uh, you know, in young people. Uh, and it's not school, but it's still an informal educational experience. Um, you know, it's a springboard for improving young people's life chances. Um, and the stuff that you do often reflects wider society of the time when you did it. Uh, and I think that's what sets it apart from maybe other local amateur dramatics and other things that people might get involved in. And, of course, it's always got to have young people at its centre. And that has been true to Burnley Youth Theatre, I think, from the very start. Uh, it's what really differentiated it uh, from other things that you might get involved in. And I was involved in loads of things. But for me, the youth theatre was the one thing that was so different to everywhere else. There's always something kind of a bit more profound going on, something a bit, you know, youth theatre was always about for the greater good. It was always a team effort. Um, There were so many other things going on other than just uh, making theatre. And it was never really about, I'm just there to show me individual talent off. Uh. And that said... The youth theatre still always strove for excellence in mm-hmm. everything that it did. You know, you learnt the craft of theatre and you learnt lots of different uh, styles of uh, of theatre in doing that. But I think you always felt that that's, that's not what it was about. It wasn't always about who had the lead part and who didn't. It mm-hmm. never was about that. Uh, it was about, you know, young people having something to get involved in. And for many young people, that wasn't even the acting. I mean, even right from the early stages, people came along for all sorts of reasons. 
I'm from all sorts of backgrounds. And sometimes they just say, well, I don't want to really act. Can I do something else? You know, so you've got an opportunity to do the props or stage management or help with the light and sound. There was a role for everybody and nobody was ever turned away. Um, and I think for some young people back in those days, um, it was an escape. It was an escape maybe from um, family circumstances that weren't great. Um it gave people a sense of belonging. I mean, the friendships were, you know, long lasting. I am still in touch with lots of people from those days of the seventies. And we still share, we still, we still share those memories over and over and over again, because it's what, it's what made you who you were when you were young people and then who you became as an adult in later life. Um, so I don't think we should ever forget that because it's that's the backdrop to, you know, the kind of factual stuff that I'm going to get into when I finally get around to it. <laughs> um, uh, and I've heard lots of comments, you know, in recent times as I've become chair of the organisation and got, you know, re-engaged with it again. And people say to me, oh, well, the youth theatre must be really different now to what it was you know, uh, all those years ago. It's, it's all about access and inclusion and diversity now, isn't it? And, you know, how we embrace everybody from all backgrounds. And we say, oh, no, 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 no. It was always like that. Mm-hmm. It was always like that. I think the language has changed. We call yeah. these things different things. But yeah. that ethos was always there. Mm-hmm. And nobody was ever barred because, you know, they couldn't financially contribute. It was never expensive to come to the youth theatre. Um, you know, and even kids who couldn't afford the odd 10 or 20 pence or whatever it was in the early days, some somebody would get in their own pocket and make sure that, you know, they could take part. So there were few restrictions mm-hmm. um, and there was certainly no selection process in the yeah. early days. You know, everybody who came along was in it, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and the cast got bigger and bigger the more people uh, that, 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 that came along. Um, so, you know, I recall lots of people from all walks of life and it brought me as a young person into contact with people probably I might not have come into contact with. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I probably had a you know, a better and more privileged life than a lot of young people had. But, you know, I met people from all backgrounds and it taught me empathy and humbleness and acceptance and, you know, it made me who I am as an adult. Um, so starting the story, <laughs> finally, right. thinking that was just the <laughs> preamble. Um, youth theatre began with a very strong association through uh, schools and uh, networks of uh, teachers uh, from those schools, mainly drama teachers, but there were all sorts of teachers involved. Um, so young people came to join the youth theatre from all parts of Burnley, usually, um you either heard from a friend or a teacher would say to you, oh, I'm in, I'm involved a bit with the youth theatre, why don't you come along? So I think that's how quite a lot of the people in the early days kind of got involved, and it's how I got involved. And there was a very close relationship in the starting days with Townley High School, which is no longer there, and Unity College is its nearest equivalent now. Um, and it's probably true to say that most of the kids who joined in those early days were from that geographical location, so, you know, most of the kids were from Fullage, Brunshaw, Burnley Wood, you know, not, not the most affluent parts of town. And I mean, that's a bit relative 
to Burnley as a whole, really. It's not, you know, Burnley's not a not an affluent, hugely affluent town, so it is all oh. relative. Um, and I think because so many teachers were involved in those early days, that's what set the youth theatre on this kind of path of being um, slightly educational uh, in its informal, broadest sense. So, as I was saying earlier, I think, you know, that's why it's always had that feeling from the start. Um, and I wasn't one of those children who joined the youth theatre because I needed confidence. <laughs> and and I, know you've had a few, I know you've had a few, I know you've had a few podcasts uh, already, you know, talking about people who, you know, were brought out of the shell and all of that. Believe you me, yeah. I didn't need bringing it out of my shell. Um, I, I was always a very creative and, you know, outgoing child. I was always doing stuff even before youth theatre. I get, I get my neighbours, uh, uh, kids, friends together, you know, we put stuff on in the back garden. And I remember once went down the local youth club at Brunsha and uh, said to the youth worker, we want to do The Wizard of Oz, can we do it in here? And the youth worker just said, well, yeah, if you want, you know. So I remember age 12 doing some production of The Wizard of Oz in there and directing it. So I always had it. I always had it in me. And I was always making stuff. I was quite into puppets as a kid. Hmm. Uh, inspired by things like Michael Benteen's Potty Time, which used to be on television, uh, which was a bit of a puppet thing. And uh, so I was always doing all that stuff. Um, and I was involved a lot of primary school as well. I had, a, I had a great teacher at primary school who was, you know, very into music and drama. And I think when you meet somebody like that when you're young as well, you know, that who kind of mentors you and supports you. And so I was in lots of school concerts and I was in the Burnley Junior Choir and then later the Burnley uh, Senior Youth Choir. So I did lots of singing and things as well. Um, so so my story with the youth theatre starts when I went to town school and um, I was in um, a couple of townly school plays. They did... They did uh, Oliver, I had a little part in that because I didn't dare audition. Strangely enough, with all that Strangely. confidence I've just talked about, yeah. um, because it was only a little first year. Um, and then they did The Wizard of Oz, and I thought, oh, I've got to audition for this. And I ended up playing the Cowardly Lion in The Wizard of Oz in the Town of School production. And it was after that um, I was encouraged to join the youth theatre. And the reason why it became easy to do that was because the youth theatre in those early days was held at Townley High School. Um, and it had a pretty state-of-the-art drama studio for its time in the 70s. And the school would kindly give um, the drama studio free of charge for the youth theatre to use in the evenings and weekends. You know, it's not it's not like it is now where everything is charged for. Um, you know, it was great that um, they had a free use of it. So the first youth theatre production I was in was, I think, in 1976. I'd be about 13. Uh, and it was The Hobbit. Uh-huh. Um, and it was directed by Peter Edwards, who was another local drama school uh, teacher. Um, and probably then all those early productions after The Hobbit, I was probably nearly everything. And to be honest with you, I can't remember them all <laughs> because I must have been in hundreds. I mean, oh. literally hundreds. So, um, but I think the pivotal one for me after The Hobbit 
um, was um, round about 19... This is where it gets more uh, around about 77, 1977, we did a big production of West Side Story, which the youth theatre has done twice, but this was the first uh, big show. Um, it had a terrific, I just remember it having a terrific, talented cast. And I remember we got great reviews for it. And I kind of think that's probably the first big production that put Burnley Youth Theatre on the local map. You know, suddenly it came out of the ether and it was there uh, and everybody yes. sort of knew about it. Yeah. Um, it's, been, uh, of... it's been described as a coming of age. It, I think it certainly was, yeah. Mm. And a lot of the people who were in that production then stayed with the youth theatre for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all grew up together and we were all great friends, you know. Um, there were quite a lot of musicals in the early days and that was, that was probably because... Um, one of the early directors involved in the youth theatre was Mick Dawson. He played the piano, um, uh, and therefore, you know, um, we did we did a lot of musicals as well because they had big casts. Mm-hmm. Um, you could sell more tickets, and obviously, you had to get money through the door and all the rest of it. And they attracted more young people because they're kind of sexy and interesting, aren't they, to do a musical? Yeah. Um, but. We did a lot of serious stuff as well. I mean, I re- I do remember one or two. I mean, we did Under Milk Wood, Dylan Thomas, and I played Dylan Thomas in that. And we did a Greek play, The Golden Mask of Agamemnon. So we did a really wide range of stuff. Um, so it was about 1976 when uh, I got involved. And I think in those early days as well, it was quite difficult to tease out what was a Townley High School production and what was a Burnley Youth Theatre production, because the two overlapped, and particularly because Mick Dawson took drama at Townley, and he was also really running the Youth Theatre. So sometimes you had Townley High School build on it, and sometimes Burnley Youth Theatre build on it together, and sometimes there were pupils from the school and Youth Theatre people. So it was really difficult to tease out what was actually a Youth Theatre thing, and then to confuse it even more, there was also the Burnley Schools Music Association. And so there were some joint productions with them, like Oklahoma, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't the youth theatre production, it was the Burnley Schools Music Association, but lots of youth theatre people were in it. So it was all a bit weird um, yeah. uh, and quite difficult to um, tease all that out. Um, mm-hmm. And right from the very start, I think I was always interested in more than the acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I was only like, you know, 13, 14, 15, after I got sailed in after the first year or so, I started to see that youth theatre was a place where if you wanted to do all the things other than acting, and I was particularly interested in directing and writing, even at that early age, that the youth theatre gave you the opportunity to do that. Um and my, I mean, my first thing I think I ever did, I'd only be about 14, 15. Um, I directed a version of the Phantom Toll Booth. Um, and uh, I, we took it on a little tour. I remember we got, we went to some schools, we went to Heson Ford School and um, up the road and things. Um, and my first big production with all the set and the costumes and the lights and a bit more fully fledged was I got to do uh, The Royal Pardon by John Arden and Margaret Darcy uh, and I got to do that in the time the drama studio and I'll be about 15 or 16 when I directed that 
and I was given a completely free reign to just do what I wanted. Really? One, it, it was amazing. And one little anecdote, because, you know, like I say, and I've been laughing at stuff, two friends of mine who were in it, they were identical twins, two lads. <laughs> and I remember casting them in the same part and just having such a laugh because one would exit stage left and then have the other one come on stage right. And I did it throughout the entire performance. And the audience couldn't understand what was going on because they, they just couldn't work out how that person had run from one side of the stage to the other. And, of course, I'd, I was just making use of the identical twins bit. Um, and I learned lots of things about building scenery and how to do the sound and lights and all of that. Everybody, you know, got to have a go at those things. You know, I think I knew how to build a stage flat when I was about 16, you know. You kind of, you learnt uh, a lot of practical skills um, in those uh, early days. And I, I was interested in other things as well, um, like um, uh, I always had an interest in dance. Uh, really? And so I remember putting together a, uh, a sort of performance of contemporary dance. <laughs> and again, yeah. about 15, 16, and I got a few of the youth theatre members and said, who's fancy doing a dance show? You know, we, we did this dance show. Um, and that kind of choreography thing in me stayed with mm -hmm. me to later years. I ended up doing a bit of extra dance at university. I, I used to sign up for extra classes and things. And I kind of always fancied myself as a ballet dancer, actually. Or, you know, and it never quite came off as a career. Um, and um, so just, just moving on a bit, um, mm -hmm. uh, I always had a bit of a quandary, um, a bit of a conflict, actually, between... Um, school and youth theatre. When I was 13, uh, they used to have the 13 plus system in Burnley, which is a bit like the old 11 plus system, um, where you got the opportunity to transfer to the grammar school or the high school. But in Burnley, they did it at 13 and not at 11 for some strange reason. So I left Townley High School and uh, got a place at the Burnley Boys Grammar School where they didn't do drama wasn't even on the syllabus and I signed up to do art because I quite like doing that and they said oh no we're not letting you do art you're too academic for that oh. so I spent my school years feeling like school never provided all the things I wanted to do and youth theatre was my outlet you know mm -hmm. that's that's where I got to do all this stuff that I wanted to do uh, and school used to frown on it all the time, uh, you know. And when I got to my O-levels and A-levels, um, you know, uh, it got a bit more difficult. You've got, you've got to take time out to do your exams. And I finally realised, you know, I've got to give up some of this youth stuff, <laughs> at least for a short while, to do the revising. So I didn't miss out on a, a, a few things. Um, but I was on what they call the fast-track exam system at the grammar school, which meant I did all my exams a year early as well. So I'd finished my A-levels by the time I was 17. I was too young to go to university. Nice. So I signed up at Nelson Cone College and did A-level theatre studies and A-level scenic 
design and costume in a year instead of the two years. And that was my chance to get that under my belt. I felt Mm -hmm. I needed the academic drama stuff in order to get into university because school wanted me to do history (laughs) because I was good at it. Uh, But little did they know I was going to go and do that drama degree. (laughs) So um, I kind of stopped getting involved in youth theatre when I went away to university Mm -hmm. um, for three years. But even during the summer holidays, I'd come back. Because you have a long time off, don't you, university? And I'd come back and I'd get involved. So my name probably crops up in programmes and things saying, you know, you've done this. Oh, but Anthony, you you, you were at university in 1981 to 84. Why comes your names on that programme? Because I I just couldn't stop myself from getting involved. Um, And just before I went off to university, my 18th birthday, um, I got the opportunity through youth theatre for a part in Juliet Bravo, the police series. Now, this has probably come up with a few other people yeah. as well, because yeah. Juliet Bravo, of course, was made in and around Burnley. And any young people's parts, they started coming to the youth theatre to get those young people, not just little extra parts. I mean, you know, they were the, they were the big parts. And I had the, I had the, uh, the main... Uh, part in one of the episodes. I didn't have the most lines, even though I had the biggest named part. Uh, and Janie Linton, now Vita, mm-hmm. who I know you've spoken to, she played my sister in it. And um, other people at that time, like Tommy Robinson and Joanne Wright, they had, they had big parts in Juliet Bravo. Tommy Robinson went on to do an acting career as a, as a result of that. Um. So on my 18th birthday, I was doing Ju- Juliet Bravo via how youth theatre got me into it. Uh, and I remember they made, it's another lovely little memory, the cast of Juliet Bravo made me a little birthday cake with police motorcycles on it. Uh, and they took me out for my 18th do to Annabella's at the Cat's Whiskers. Oh, the Cat's Whiskers. Which is where the bingo hall is now in, yeah. in Burnley. You know, and I just never forget that. And I think for a moment I was tempted not to go to university, thinking, "Oh, I've got I've got a potential acting career here now." Uh, but anyway, fortunately, I did go off and do my stuff. And uh, just thinking a little bit about behind the scenes of the youth theatre in the seventies. I mean, when you're a young person, you probably don't know much about what was going on organisationally. But because my mother became involved as a parent right from those early days, I knew a little bit about what was happening behind the scenes. Um, There were quite a few parents involved and then gradually they were being drawn in to be a bit of a kind of management committee. I don't think it was very formalised in the early days, but there was a sort of management committee of parents um, who did did the functions behind the scenes mm-hmm. um but youth theater became a bit more independent when it sort of left townley high school it didn't leave it for good because it still did productions there and i'll tell you why it still did productions there <laughs> but it it did get its own premises so its first ever independent premises was a place called the old deaf institute on hebrew road in duke bar mm-hmm. Now, 
this is when I was involved. And just to give you a flavour of this place, <laughs> I remember it had the steepest staircase from a little door going in it up to the upper floor where there was some old sort of school hall and some classrooms going around it. And it was really dusty and really dirty. I mean, it was a horrible place. How they ever got around health and safety? You know, to even have the public in it in those buildings is beyond me. But anyway, it, it was our home. And all the rehearsals would, would take place there uh, in the early 70s. But it, it couldn't have a performing licence. It wasn't, you know, and it wasn't kitted for that. So that's why things carried on happening really at, at Tangney School. But one of the early productions that was rehearsed up there was Joseph and his amazing technical dream court. And um, we took it on tour around all the local churches. Um, it went; it just seemed to go on forever. I just remember there were just loads, loads of performances of it. Um, but two lovely little anecdotes are: uh, we did it at Zion Baptist Church on Church Street, which is still there, and the entrance way was through the baptism font. So we we would emerge up this submerged stepped baptism font to make your entrance onto the stage. I remember that being particularly hilarious. And the other anecdote is Joseph has a chariot in the story and one of the parents, Gwyneth Smalley, used to strap it on a roof rack on the top of her estate car to get it to the next venue and it came off down Belvedere Road. I remember I remember this chariot wheeling its way down the road. So you, you never forget um, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> And there were quite a few puppet productions mm. in the early days, giant puppet productions. Um, because Hebrew Road was dusty and mucky and you could chuck paint around and, you know, make a mess. Um, that's possibly why these puppets took off. But there was a giant puppet show called The Silver Bird, uh, a Japanese folktale made out of, uh, we made fiberglass uh, heads. I remember we got involved in the fiberglass to make them. And we did that in the Market Square. And then there was another giant puppet show called uh, Lydia Laust, which we did with something to do with the health organisations. And it's as it would, as it sounds, it was about head lice. So, <laughs> so it was, it was, it was, a you know, even in those early days, we were doing things with partners, yeah. you know, and, and doing that kind of stuff. Um, and... I remember a particular individual who helped the youth theatre out at that time. And she was the mayor of Burnley. Her name was Ruth Pilling. And for some reason, she just took a shine to the youth theatre and decided that was going to be a pet charity. And I think one of the biggest grants the youth theatre ever got was, you know, a thousand quid out of the mayor's fund, which in those days was quite a lot of money. Um, and so she was an early big supporter. Um and there was a lady called Olive Lamb who used to be the district youth and community officer, Lancashire County Council. Um, and she, I, I always, you remember how people look. I always remember Ruth Killing in her sort of 1950s hat. And I always remember Olive Lamb in a big fur coat smoking cigars. But, you know, it's just those memories you never get. But yeah. Olive Lamb was quite supportive, and I think through a bit of money, the youth theatre's way. And in subsequent years, people like Steve Roman and Lily Rushton, who became district chief youth officers, got very involved and supportive of the youth theatre. Steve Roman was definitely on the board of trustees 
um, for, for a while. Um, and then in about the next bit of the journey is in about 1977-78, the Youth Theatre had some discussions with Mid Penang Arts. Mm-hmm. Now, I know this is something you will know about because you've researched it in other formats. Yeah. Um, and this was about whether the Youth Theatre wanted to take on the site on Queen's Park Road, where they are now. And um, there were two big wooden huts on there, probably 100, 120 feet by 30 foot. Um, there were some caravans on there. Um, and it was all occupied by Welfare State. Um, and Welfare State, it was... Uh, Difficult to describe kind of, you know, who Welfare State are because they are so unique. But, you know, they do, you know, they were noted for their outdoor spectacle and, um, you know, big community, uh, largely outdoor events. But obviously they wrote lots of pivotal books like Engineers of the Imagination. And if you were a drama student, you would know about Welfare State. But they were, they were um, all set to go up to Cumbria. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were going to vacate the site um, and Youth Theatre were asked if they wanted to take it on. The land was owned by the council, so the lease was exchanged to the Youth Theatre, but the sheds were still there. Welfare State couldn't take them with them. And I remember them asking 500 quid for the sheds or something, but I don't think the Youth Theatre ever paid the money over. It was just like, give us 500 quid, but we never did it. Um, but I'd had a bit of involvement with Welfare State before the youth had to moved on that side because they had a yurt week, Mongolian yurts. And I remember going on that site, taking part in it, staying in this Mongolian yurt, cooking around the campfire, telling stories with uh, Welfare State running it. I remember their big burning the parliament, Houses of Parliament, bonfire on Fullage Wreck. I remember their uh, Loves, Lives and Murders of Lancelot Barabbas Quail production on Fullage Wreck. I remember uh, their Halloween um, promenade performance, which they did round Bruncher Estates and frightened everybody to death. Um, uh, You know, so... and it inspired me. It was another thing that inspired me, actually, as a, as a youngster. It taught me about performance in its widest sense, and particularly not in traditional theatre spaces. Mm. Um, so they, they, they were quite an influence, and it was strange how those two things kind of coincided. Yeah. Uh, you know, the welfare state side and then youth theatre uh, getting on there. So my, my memories of getting on the site, I was, I was one of the first people that walked on that site when oh. Youth Theatre took it on, you know, when you kind of give them the keys to the padlocks on the two wooden buildings and we walked on there. There was no electricity. Um, the huts, you could see daylight through the ceilings, <laughs> you know, so they weren't they weren't watertight. Um, there were no amenities. There was an outdoor water standpipe. Um, Welfare State had left quite a few bit, bits and pieces in the building they didn't take with them. There was an old cast iron ghost train that they'd used in some production down Hamilton Street. Uh, there was a big library of books that they'd left. And then there were these strange pebbles all around the site with painted eyes on them. I believe they're oh. to keep evil away, aren't they? Keep the evil, evil yeah. Yeah. So um, I do remember lots of 
how the site was. And oh, there was a bit of a smell of gasoline because they used yeah. a lot of fire. They used a lot of fire in their productions, yeah. didn't they? So there was a, there was a very distinct smell about it. And there were a couple of old garages on there, and there was a little black wooden shed on stilts just to the um, right-hand side of where the Moira Presting building is now, which stuck out from the hillside. Um, so when we moved on to the site in those early days, um, you know, th there was a lot to do, shall I say, because, you know, it, it wasn't very habitable. Um, and one of the first things was to get a generator to provide electricity. Yeah. Um, so it was one of the kind of ongoing memories, really, of the early days. You'd have to arrive to go and crank the generator up before you did anything, you know, and it always yeah. broke down. And I think it was nicked a couple of times, you know, and we had to raise money to get a new one. Um, and all the heating was portable Calagas um, things. We had Calagas oh. stoves, some quite big ones. Um you know, still having to get water from the outdoor standpipe and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, management meetings where you'd have a whip round to pay the bills because we couldn't afford to do it. Um, and then one of the first things we remember, I remember buying, apart from the generator, uh, was the Gestetner printing machine, which was another thing you had to turn a big handle and crank. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you printed all the scripts off on that. And it took hours. It took yeah. hours printing these things off but it's one of the jobs that everybody wanted to do every young person said well can i can i go yeah. print all the scripts off because you just turn that handle for hours on end <laughs> um and then round about that time i i went off for a little bit i joined the manchester youth theater um <laughs> peter edwards who i mentioned earlier he was one of the directors with the manchester youth theater um so he told me about it um and that gave me a kind of another youth theatre experience. Mm -hmm. um, it was only over the summer, of around about 1977, 78. Uh, but that's what inspired me to come back and do the Fountain Toll booth at the youth theatre because that was the production um, that we I did at the Manchester Youth Theatre. Um, and some of those early performances, when we moved on to the site, there was nowhere to perform up there. So we carried on doing stuff at Townley, but... I do remember things like uh, we did Gilbert and Sullivan's The Gondoliers, uh, which I was in. And I think what that also exemplified was we had um, two adults that came and joined us in it, Kathleen Cummings and Nigel Wilkinson, who weren't married then but are married now. Uh, and Kathleen Cummings, now Wilkinson, um, went on to be an international opera singer and is still one to this day. In fact, she's just been on tour in Germany or somewhere this last week, uh, still lives in Burnley. Uh, and um, her and her husband now uh, were in that, two of the uh, uh, performers in it. So there was a bit of a mixture of adults and young people sometimes yeah. uh, in productions uh, together. Um and then the relationship with the council once we moved on the site, um, that, that started to develop a bit further. And I think one of the pivotal people in that was Andrew Walker. He was uh, the, the uh, director of uh, planning and development at Burnley Council. And he got very involved with the youth theatre and later he became the chair of the youth theatre for a, 
a, a long, long time. Um, but um, he started to find ways and means of the youth theatre developing the site, you know, both the resources uh, and the council support in one shape or another. And Peter Pike, the MP at the time, was also very in involved. Mm. Um, um, and one of the early things was they set up a youth opportunities training scheme up there. So there was this group of young lads and two supervisors based on the site, and they were there to learn carpentry and building and electrics, and they did horticulture and had a little greenhouse. Um, and the council found bits of money and gradually we started to develop one of those built those wooden buildings. Um, so those lads did a lot of the work on it where they were learning the skills and we finally got a toilet block and, you know, the, the studio theatre got uh, done out for us. But not everything. We still had to raise money for things like to put the electrics in and a lot, a lot of the volunteers did that. Um, so volunteers were still, you know, really, really important at that time. Uh, I'll take a little breather now, if in case you've got any questions, and then I can have a bit of coffee. Because <laughs> that's the, I think that's the way up to the first bit of the, the story. First bit. Okay. Uh... Okay. So, so m m moving on a bit. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to say a little bit about young people's representation in the decision making of the yeah. organisation, and um, once we've moved on to the Queens Park Road site, um, we started to develop what we call member member representatives. Um, you became a member, I think you paid an annual fee of about three quid or something, and then you paid your subs every time you came to a rehearsal. But we had this member reps thing, and it was quite interesting uh, because, again, I think it's, you know, another essential ingredient to what makes a youth theatre a youth theatre, uh, young people having the say in what productions we chose and the decision-making and all the rest of it. But it even went a bit further than that because member reps once they'd been elected and you were elected, <laughs> you, you went to the AGM and you had to give a speech. Wow. And then the members voted for you. It was like a political rally. Uh, and I was one of the member reps and there were a few others, maybe four or five of us. And then you got to go to the management committee meetings. So you were involved in, you know, the discussions with the adults about the organisation behind the scenes, which is probably why, I knew a lot of what was going on uh, at the time. Um, and I think it's important also to just kind of pay credit as well to the fact that at this time, nobody was paid to do anything. Mm. You know, there were, no, there were no professional fees for uh, the direction or whatever. Everything relied on volunteers. Volunteers were, you know, it wouldn't have operated without volunteers. And volunteers did everything um you know from the sweeping up and the cleaning to you know and the fundraising which was of course very very important um we used to have lots and lots and lots of fundraising and some of it was you know i think we had to look back and think about doing something again but we did the obvious things like jumble sales and uh, you know street collections 
Um, but we, we did one or two other interesting things. Like we always did an annual carol singing round all the pubs. Oh. Um, and I used to really look forward to that. We used to do it every Christmas time. We do a few nights running up to Christmas, and we spent quite a lot of money out of it. And in later years, we did a Santa's Grotto, which we did with the Chamber of Trade, and we used to do it in the entrance to the old cinema in uh, the Market Square up the top. And interestingly, one of our trustees now, Stephen Cook, used to play Santa in that. Um, so we, we, was a lot, we had lots of interesting uh, fundraising. The 24-hour plays... Yes. which started way back in the 70s, which we did over and over and over again. Mm. Um, so all of that, really, really important stuff. Um, I, I just remember as well a lot of autonomy for young people. I mean, we were all, at those days, it was all teenagers. We didn't have anybody under about 13. You know, it was kind of 13 and above. Um, the younger age groups didn't start till a lot later. Um, so people would come along and, like me, wanted to direct at 15. There were other people who wanted to do stuff as well. And I, I, I remembered a couple of things, that, uh, which I just remembered this morning, actually. Uh, Michael Burney, who was one of my colleagues at the time in the 70s, um, he desperately wanted to do Abigail's Party by Mike Lee. Wow. Which is a very, which is a very yeah. famous TV play. Yeah. And he wanted to do it because he wanted to play Beverly. Right. And I just remember at the time, you know, him coming along saying, I want to do Abigail's party. Can I do it? And I want to play Beverly. And he did. And he was great in it. You know, yeah. so stuff like that. And another and another one there, Martin Sharp, who was there at that time. We did a, a rehearsed reading of the importance of being earnest. And Martin wanted to play Lady Bracknell, which he did in a wonderful rinsed purple wig. So you 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 just remember all this stuff, and um, you know you you were encouraged to put these things on yourself, rehearse them yourself, you know, do the set and the lights for it yourself. Um, all that autonomy was great. I think much yeah. more difficult in this day and age. There's so yeah. much more now about, you know, leaving kids to do their own thing. But back in mm -hmm. those days, it was much easier. Yeah. Um, um, giving you a, a great sense of agency, of being being a part of something bigger than just you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, the first opening production, once we got the building sorted on... Um, uh, the Quarry Theatre site, uh, was Camelot. I can't, can't remember the year, um, but um, because I wasn't really, I think I might have been at university then, so it was around about then, um, 83 or something, 84. Um, but even around about that time, Youth Theatre was still doing productions elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, Burnley College was used quite a bit. So there were productions down there like Company and Godspell uh, uh, and so on. And oh no, and I've just remembered as well, I shouldn't forget, that before the building was opened, and we called it the Quarry Theatre because, of course, that site is an old quarry. That's the reason for the name. Um, the first outdoor production up there was Macbeth, oh. which we did outside. Uh, and I just remember it never stopped raining. 
Oh. I've never known. I just remember, and it wasn't just light rain. I mean, it really chucked it down. <clears throat> and we bought a second-hand scout marquee and opened one side of it to view the stage area, which was the slippy slope to the right-hand side of the Moira Preston building. And um, I just remember, oh, just, yeah, I just, it was just so wet and muddy. And I just remember everybody sliding down that hillside in the mud. But I also remember we had these two poles stuck in the ground with two rotting heads, carcasses of cows. So because the weather was particularly bad, they got pretty smelly during that <laughs> week. Um, so that that's an early memory. We went on to do one or two other outdoor productions up there, uh, but I think that was possibly the first. Um, and then one of the, again, you talked about West Side Story being a kind of, you know, <clears throat> pivotal moment. I think the next pivotal moment was 1980, 81-ish, um, Hair, uh, which was done at Townley Drama Studio, uh, but then got entered into this regional um, competition. And it got shown at the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester, Oh, did I enjoy it? Did I? I mean, you know, that feeling of being in, you know, a proper big professional space. I mean, I just can't tell you what that meant as a sort of, you know, 17, 18 year old or whatever I was. I mean, it's just so, 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 so memorable. And interestingly, Anne Whitfield, who was director of Midpennine Arts at that time, stage managed that. Um, so she she was quite involved at that time. Um, so was the, that was that the first time the youth theatre went? You well, know to to, uh, out of, I would say it was the first time town. we went out of town. Yes, we had done little tours in community centres and schools and churches and so on, but that was the first big thing out of town. Yeah, and yeah, in in a well known prestigious theatre space, so Hair mm. will definitely be the first one. I mean, in later years, as I'll talk about later, there's lots of examples of stuff that we uh, did. Um, but I remember as well that, you know, just on the technical side, because we shouldn't forget, there were lots of people on the technical side that played a very important role. I mean, Lee Rothwell, who did a lot of the technical side back in those uh, days, is now the technical manager of Burnley Mechanics. Uh, and we had people like Andrew Davis and Stephen Pulford, who did technical over the years, who went on to be technical managers on cruise ships. You know, I mean, we produced people who just didn't go into acting, mm. but also people who went into those kind of roles. We produced stage managers, we produced writers, we produced directors, and I will I will list a few uh, at the end for you. Oh, but um, really I think nice. that's really kind of quite interesting where mm. young people have gone on to do careers that haven't just been the normal as you would expect um yeah. acting and and that old theater on in the old wooden hut the old quarry um you know it had some old cinema seats in it that we got from somewhere and um you know the tech box i remember you know we were still on things like 
reel-to-reel tape recorders and every light had to be plugged in separately. There was no digital anything. No, no. But actually you learned the skill. It's a bit like learning what's behind a computer, you know, like how to computer program. You actually know what goes in behind it all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I couldn't program a, t- a digital lighting board now, but in those days I learned how to do the all the other stuff. Um and uh, just picking up on the Anne Whitfield Mid Pennine Arts um, uh, connection uh, again, uh, they had a sort of community arts team. Uh, yeah. There were two people, Zoe and Sue. Um, and the only time I think we ever got together as Mid Pennine and Youth Theatre more directly was their two community workers um, devised a production called Marja Rapidu, which was in. Um, Townley School Drama Studio, and everybody always remembers it for the big stretchy latex bags or whatever that was suspended from the ceiling. But that's the most memorable thing. They had young people inside them bouncing up and down. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, our young archivist group have been interested in that and what it was about. So hopefully- well, I can't remember much about what the production was about. I, mm. I think I helped with the stage management on it. I do remember we collected a lot of uh, natural things for the stage. We went out on the moors and got, oh, I don't know. I just remember there being a lot of rocks and branches and stuff like that on the stage. But oh. if you ask me what was the production about, I can't remember. <laughs> Sorry. It sounds quite out there. <laughs> it was, Yeah, I think it was out there. And it was very much devised from the young people's ideas. And we did a bit of a... Not quite a residency, but I remember Sue Pemsel had a farm, Todmorden Way, and we all went up there and we did a sort of, I don't know, fact-finding, devising day or something up there. I vaguely remember it. <laughs> um, and when I came back from university, one of the um, first things I did was um, I'd written a piece about the life of Hans Christian Andersen uh, called uh, Would I Were Rich. And oh. I, so that's another memory that sticks in my mind because it was kind of coming back and directing something again. And I did that in the back end of the building. I might have still been at university. I might have done it during the summer holidays, I forget. But um, that kind of uh, sticks with me. And then sometime in the 80s, after the building had opened, the second building, which was used for storage mainly, costumes and scenery and stuff, it burnt down. Oh. Um, now, that was a bit of a calamitous loss because it had all the scenery and props and all the costumes in it that we collected for years and years and years. Um, but it was insured. Um, and it wasn't a like-for-like replacement. Um, so I do remember it wasn't a massive amount of money, but I think there was about fifty thousand pounds of insurance on it. And when that burnt down, whilst it was a emotional loss, mm. um, for the first time ever, youth theatre had some money in the bank. Um, and I think that really started the kind of financial backdrop for the youth theatre to maybe think about. You know, can we? How can we move forward now from this kind of totally voluntary amateur setup, maybe to something which is a bit more uh, professionalised? Mm. And and there were other bad times uh, for the site during those eighties years. 
Um, we had two uh, lots of uh, traveller incurments where they got onto the site and took up residence and we couldn't get them off. And there was a long process of legal battles to get them evicted. And after that, we had to make sure there were gates on the site because they did a lot of damage. And obviously we couldn't rehearse up there or do anything while they were on. And it went on for weeks, if not months. Um, so it was a, you know, it was a bad time. And the, and the, the site on there was just gravel. There was no tarmac. So, you know, a particular memory was people used to come in and complain that the tyres had burst and the potholes on the site and what we were going to do about it. And, you know, who was responsible? Parent, angry parents saying, you're going to pay for my new tyre. We'd <laughs> say, well, you know, you drive on here at your own risk, really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't all, you know, it wasn't all good memories. There were some, you know, yeah. bad memories. Um. And once that new building had opened, uh, you know, a big a big name to mention here is Paul Abbott, you yeah. know, of uh, uh, shameless fame and other stuff that he has done, which most people know about. And the reason he became involved is because he was the partner of Sheila Culf at the time. He was another drama teacher at Towner School. And she she got involved because she directed a few things. And because Paul was her partner, he used to be an ex-hairdresser, strangely enough. Um and um, he decided he wanted to get into writing and he tried his first few things out at the youth theatre. And, you know, those were um, The Fallen Death of Willie Blob about youth unemployment and was Male Model the other one? I can't remember. Male anyway, there were two. Yeah. So he wrote, he wrote those. He, you know, he'd started to think about, I've got a bit of a talent for this. And then I remember hearing that he'd sent some scripts off to Coronation Street and overnight, Coronation Street took him on, and he wrote for Coronation Street for about eight years. Hey, never um, knew. So that's kind of how how his career began. Yeah. Uh, you know, was he told to do youth theatre? Well, no, not really. But he got he got to no. do those couple of things and do a bit of a tryout. Well, he he was there to offer that opportunity. Yeah. You know. Um. So the next bit of the story, which we might do in a second podcast mainly, is you know when I returned from university in 1984. And that kind of tells the next bit, really, where I wasn't just a participant and an actor and uh, mainly an actor, but directing the odd thing. When I came back from university, it wasn't really about to come back and do acting i was too old for that even though i ended up being in a couple of things which i'll tell you about um but i came back um you know wanting to offer something different uh to the youth theater and that was mainly about directing and then later you know becoming its artistic director for about 10 years um but that's the kind of next bit of the story and we may be better leaving it there and then doing that next bit because the next bit is that 84 to uh, 89 um, and then in 1989 I really uh, uh, left um, the youth theatre for a long time because I got a job in Manchester and joined Northwest Arts Board and then the Arts Council which is part of the later story. Yeah. Well thank you very much Anthony.